Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of Dano Says So. Uh, my guest tonight was a bit of a white whale for me, um, a guest I had hunted longer than most. Um, founding member of the MC5, a songwriter and an axe man whose work has landed him on stage with the likes of, you know, people from Johnny Thunders to Tom Morello, members of Soundgarden, members of Fugazi, people, you know, at all corners of what I consider to be relevant music. Um, he is a published author. He is a former resident of the federal penal system, and he is an inspiring story at this point in his life. I can't thank him enough for being here. So Wayne Kramer, thank you for doing this. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with your listeners and share some ideas. All righty. When I think of the MC5, who had become a bigger fascination of mine in recent years, the thing that has me scratching my head, and then I figure it's cool to ask the source, is there was faster music or rowdier music by that point in the late 60s, but there's a decided sense of attack or just sort of a viciousness, in my opinion, to the MC5's presentation and particularly the live show. Where in hell did that come from? Well, a great deal of it is the, is the um, boundless enthusiasm of youth. Okay. That uh, when I was young, I was certain about a great many things. And uh, I had what seemed to be inexhaustible energy and commitment. And um, I was, uh, you know, you know, passionate about the band. And, and uh, I saw the band as being the solution to, to all my problems. Okay. And within that, in the art that we created, we were inspired by um, our early rock and roll heroes, the music of Little Richard and Chuck Berry, um, and the, uh, the you know gut bucket blues and rhythm and blues that we were exposed to when we were younger. <clears throat> along with the the um, instrumental bands, the, you know, the coming of the electric guitar bands, the Ventures and uh, Johnny and the Hurricanes and, uh, um, you know, all those one-off hit singles, sure. you know, Woo Hoo by the Rocketeens and uh, Dwayne Eddy. And, um, and then later... Uh, we were really fueled by the inspiration we found in the free jazz movement, the music right. of Cecil Taylor and Albert Eiler and, and Sun Ra and Train and, 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 you know, the hard boppers, the guys that came out of bebop that were pushing the, the music forward. And, and uh, I think the final element was, of course, we were part of a generation that was in unspoken agreement that the direction the country was going in was dead wrong, mm -hmm. and we had some better ideas. Yeah, to me, I mean, I have all the examples that you say, and particularly in the, the blues to me, the blues, there's always been a danger element or a, a little bit of a knife edge to it, right? That I saw as being sort of a pronounced element with you guys. Also, if you listen to the way songs, well, the way songs were introduced and the way you carried yourselves and the way the band was framed, there's a confrontational 
confrontational aspect that to me, to my perceptions, wasn't really part of rock and roll on that on that level before you guys. I mean, to me, the MC5 seemed to be picking a fight. It may have it may have seemed that way. I can I can see how you would you would interpret it that way. I, but but really, I mean, we were certainly provocateurs in that we were trying to instigate our fans to take action, um, you know, to to get involved, to take a stand, uh, because I, my my fundamental sense is. Uh, you have to be full measures. You have to be in it with both feet. You have to make a total commitment. If you make half a commitment, mm -hmm. the result you get is nothing. Okay. You don't get a half result. You get nothing. You get shit. So okay. You have to go all the way with it. And even if you're wrong, you will find out that you are wrong and you'll be able to adjust your course from there. But if you if you don't make a commitment, then you never find out if you are right or wrong, and you never get anything accomplished. So there's this mischievous smile and this twinkle that crept in your eye when you talked about being wrong. Were you reflecting on any particular missteps or? No, just wrong, being wrong in general, of which I have much experience. Okay, I'm um, wrong often. <laughs> okay, I've got one f a question for you that is contextually interesting to me, and it was funny because in the book you sort of make light of it by taking a, a quick jab at yourselves, saying we were anything but a serious political outfit or something along that lines. Yeah. But the way something lands, I'm in my fifties. I'm no teen but we're not of the identical generation, right? And I have this fascination with the activism that came before me and with the fights that came before me, but I will admit the existence of or self-reference as White Panthers lands funny to me now, and I would love, I would love to hear your take on it. Not funny, haha, -ha, funny, like how exactly did this work? Yeah, we were frustrated with the slow pace of change. Okay. You know, my trouble with instant gratification is it takes too long. <laughs> you know, we wanted the war to end, the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. We wanted the drug laws to uh, reflect a more realistic um, policy, um, as especially certainly as regards marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted Americans... America's, uh, you know, uh, uptight sexual mores to loosen up a little bit. And, right. you know, come on, guys, if you want to sleep with somebody, sleep with somebody. You know, we had the pill. And so, you know, you didn't have to get married and all that, like our parents believed. And most generations going back to the Victorian era mm -hmm. believed. And <clears throat> one of us, one of our community uh, was serving a sentence in the county jail and got a copy of the Black Panther newspaper where it's where Huey Newton said there needed to be a white group that could do parallel work to the Black Panther Party in the white community. Mm -hmm. And we said, that's us. Because A, Panthers looked great. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. The beret, the sunglasses, the black leather jackets. We said, yeah, that's a good look. Style matters, baby. <laughs> Style is eternal. Fashion is temporary. All right. 
And um, we had, you know, I had never admired someone, some a group as as much as these young black men in Oakland, California, that would confront the police with guns and law books. Okay. Because they knew their rights and they could demand that the police officers recognize their rights. Um, that was powerful stuff in 1967, 1968. I mean, that was, you know, as powerful as Muhammad Ali and, and Malcolm X were. There's a reason you and I are supposed to be talking. I'm sitting about 15 feet from a picture of Bobby Seale. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, exactly. Um, what's funny is to hear you talk about, about Huey Newton making that call that there should be a, a correlating white organization, because the first thing that I think a lot of people would read right now, seeing the, you know, you guys wearing the white Panther badges and everything else is there would be this, this fear or even this suspicion of, of like cultural appropriation, really quite the opposite. It's more like responding to a call. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. And, and the, my sense is we are all in this together. Okay. We're all in the world together. You know, I've, I've heard this question voiced as long as I've played music. And, and you know, James Brown's music, that's my music too. Okay. You know, uh, the Parliament Funkadelic, that's my music too. Uh, you know, the Motown studio band, those are my men too, you know. Um, I understand and, and recognize and and uh, and give credit to the influence of black artists all my life, always will. The recognition that that these music forms were born out of the slave experience as it as it evolved through history, but you know culturally we're all subject to the same influences at this stage of the game. And it's, you know, the, 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 the White Panther Party, uh, I think it's fair to say, gave us a, a way to express our frustration. It gave us a, a vehicle okay. to, to um, get that, you know, anger and, and uh, sense of, you know, being, you know, that idea, Bobby Seale was was gagged and bound in the, tri the Chicago trial. You know, that's how we all felt mm -hmm. in America. You know, especially if you were trying to say something that the police and and the authorities disagreed with. So, and and of you know, to be fair, we were we weren't like militant revolutionaries in a in a warehouse on the west side of Detroit, cleaning our shotguns and planning for the violent overthrow of the government. I mean, I think about what happened on January 6th, mm -hmm. and never in my wildest dreams did I ever imagine that thousands of us would attack the Capitol. Let's, let's jump ahead then to a question I was going to ask you later. But that that kind of gateways it, which is um, sort of in setting the atmosphere in in the book, the hard stuff, and in sort of I think explaining your own motivations. You 
discuss your first experiences with riots and you talk about driving through a race riot in Detroit. Um, George Floyd is last year. January 6th is this year. Have we grown or have we not? Well, it's important to, to, to note that they weren't race riots. Okay. They were, they were rebellions. They were black people in America, in the cities mostly, who had just had enough of white police officers brutalizing them, um, extorting them, murdering them, um, white landlords um, gouging them, white merchants gouging them. Um, and, you know, you can only keep your boot on someone's neck for so long, and sooner or later they're going to buck. They're going to fight back. And, and that's what happened across America. They, those weren't race riots where black people went out to kill white people, unlike, say, that um, there was a, a race riot in Detroit in the 1940s where white people did go out and lynch and murder black people. Right, and right. of course, that, that's well known to have happened across the South, the Tulsa massacre. I was going to say Black Wall Street. Yeah. Black Wall Street. Um, so, there, so they weren't race riots. They were police riots. Okay. They were the police over-responding to the black community's outrage at the way they were forced to live. You know, in Detroit in the 60s, in the era that I came up, Detroit was booming. The auto industry was thriving. Uh, the retail industry was thriving. All the little industries, the little shops that built one little specialized part for the auto industry. You know, the place was rocking, but African-American people didn't share in any of that prosperity. They didn't share in it um, economically. They didn't share in it uh, socially. Uh, they didn't share in it politically. They had no voice in city government or county government or state government. And yet they were doing all the crappiest jobs on the shop floor. Mm -hmm. You know, they were first, last hired, first fired. So, you know, it's not a mystery why they finally went off. And of course, the, the uh, white power structure overreacted as they always do when, when they're up against people that are a different color, mm -hmm. not unlike what we've experienced in the Middle East. Um, and so there. Okay. Yeah. To me, to me, there was real sadness or a real sense of backward motion that came with the, that came with the last two years in America, you know, I know. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, have things changed? Absolutely. Are we better off than we were? Absolutely. Are things great? Hell no. Okay. You know, there, there are still uh, deep systemic problems to be solved you know the culture of policing is uh, is a, it's perverse and it's aberrated and it's protected you know police unions um, the courts traditionally um, will believe a white policeman over a black defendant uh, you know that's not right that's not justice no and and uh, so you know there are you know in this 
the whole idea that the police are sent out to do an admittedly really hard job, completely undertrained, totally ill-equipped for the challenges they face. Do you wrestle with that whole, uh, I don't know what you would call it, moniker or whatever, but the, it's very popular to throw out the ACAB, all cops are bastards notion, you know? And to me, it's it's They're a counter. Yeah, it's a counterproductive oversimplification. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You got to be careful with those painting with the broad brush. Right. So let's uh, talk about when the brush landed on Wayne Kramer. Um, so my perception is is that figuring out the next step after the MC five was done was com complicated by a couple things, but maybe nothing more so than your own proclivities or your own, your own battles with chemical issues or with internal stuff. I think it would be dumb of me to try to voice it, but what would you, what would you say, you know, characterize the phrase, the phase immediately after the band and what eventually led to you getting in trouble with the, with the legal system? Well, I, I just was not prepared for life after the MC five. Okay. I mean, I had a plan from the time I was 13. I wanted nothing more than to be a professional musician and then to play in a band. And for a long time, I just wanted to play in nightclubs. To me, that, that was like the apotheosis of okay. cool. You know, I knew older musicians. My mother had, uh, I had raised, me and my sister were raised by a single working mother the hardest working people in the world. And, um, and I, you know, I'd, I'd hear stories about what happened at the club last night. And just, it was this mysterious world and I couldn't wait to be part of it. And then later with the coming of the first wave of British bands, the Beatles and the Stones and the Yardbirds and the Who and all them, I started to see that, you know, there was places to play beyond the club. You could play concerts, and uh, you could you could go on tour and travel around the world and see what's going on in the world. And I had no preparation for what if what if all that went sideways. Okay. And uh, I mean, this is again part of part of uh, youth. I think, you know, this. Uh, you know, living in the moment, which actually is philosophically correct. <laughs> you can only live in the moment you're in, right. but that doesn't mean you can't anticipate the future and plan for the future. I had no plans for the future outside of being this uh, rock musician. Mm -hmm. And when, when that went away one day, um, it, it left me rudderless, principleless, um, completely adrift in the world and in a inordinate amount of psychic pain. You know, I, I'd, I'd lost my best friends. I'd lost my place in the community. I lost my way to make a living. Uh, I lost my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I lost my possessions. I, you know, I had nothing. I was going nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I acquired the uh, mental disorder of 
drug addiction and alcoholism. Mm -hmm. But getting high became the solution to my problem. Mm -hmm. My problem was I couldn't get along in the world. Right. The world <laughs> would just not conform to my wishes, to my demands. Okay. And eventually the hammer came came down. What were the exact details there? Well, I think I think you know, I I I the ground was already set because I had been a thief since the time I was a boy. Okay. And so st I had a flexible morality. <laughs> okay. So so as an adult with no way to make a living, I was constantly going from desperation to desperation. And when people are in desperate situations, they do desperate things. And it wasn't a big leap for me to turn to crime. And uh, I had always been fascinated with it and, you know, read everything I could get my hands on about the mafia and, and uh, organized crime and bank robbers and and drug dealers and pimps and um i thought yeah i could do that i could do that i could be a pimp i could be a thug i thought i was a tough guy and and uh and yeah i could be i i i, I fell in love with that movie the godfather and, and, and I wanted to be a gangster and drive around in a nice car and carry a pistol and go to nice restaurants and talk about business. You know, this was a I was living. A, I was delusional. I was. Right. A, this is a grandiose delusion that I was acting out. And eventually, I I thought I was going to be a, a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. You know, and. Uh, and that would be the way I could pay for my new band and, you know, I could survive and I could be like a, a player. And of course, as a gangster, I'm a great guitar player. <laughs> uh -huh. And, uh, and uh, you know, and I'm a total amateur. I, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I was surrounded by other complete in incompetent fools like myself. And, you know, I, I was asking to be busted and I was busted a number of times. And, you know, the way they work it in court in the criminal justice system is you go to court and the first time you go, they say, you're a nice guy. We're, we're going to give you a little more rope and you come back again and, eh, well, you've made a couple mistakes, but we're going to give you another pass and, you know, don't do it again. And, okay, now we're going to put you on probation. And and finally, when you come back to court enough times, they say, look, we gave you enough rope. Right. <laughs> now we're going to hang you with it. <laughs> and they got to do something to you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing. They taught me in prison. In prison, I learned how to deal drugs. Well, I know how to do it now. That's something I wanted to ask you, which was, uh, was it three years? And did you serve the full three or four years? I got or? four, but okay. I only did about three, yeah. Okay, so about three years in the federal penitentiary. Do you feel like it prepared you for a different and better life coming out? Or it prepared you for more of the same? It, yeah, no, it didn't pre prepare me for a better life coming out. Um it, it embittered me. 
Uh, I came out uh, more cynical, um, less trusting. Uh, you know, I was fairly ebullient young man when I went in and, mm -hmm. you know, I was in love with, you know, playing the guitar and writing songs and being in a band and, uh, and came out with a whole different view about how the world worked. You know, it's a, it's a, for the first time you go to prison for people that, you know, haven't gone to prison, haven't done time. The first time you go, it's a terrible experience. It's, uh, it's embarrassing. It's emasculating. It's terrifying. Um, you you are full of shame. You're resentful for where you are and who the people you got to live with, mm -hmm. uh, the, the shit you got to endure. It's, 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 it's not, it's, it's a terrible thing. And, and you know, and we talked about the judge giving me four years, this was in 1975. Okay. And I thought four years was way too much time. Um, and I've since done enough uh, research to, to understand the psychology of incarceration that anything, a first, any lesson, any changes that need to be made for a first time offender mm -hmm. will be accomplished in six months. You know, if they rip you out of your life and lock you up in a prison, um, you're going to learn any lesson there is to be learned within a six-month period. Mm -hmm. After that, you just start to degrade. And after six years, you have lost your ability to function in the world, you know, to balance your checkbook, to pay your bills, to show up at a job. To, you know, you, you're, you're a citizen of a new world, not the world out here. My offense got me a four-year sentence, which I thought was much too severe. Since then, as the war on drugs has ratcheted up and the get tough on crime policies have entered the picture, people are serving life without the possibility of parole for the exact same offense that I got a four-year sentence for. So that shows you where, how much progress we've made there. The reality of your story, as I understand it, though, is that after coming out and committing some of the same mistakes and struggling with some of the same things, there's a really hard search that had to go on and a ton of discovery that had to go on. It seems to me that it, it, it resulted in two things, which is a unique take on the realities of recovery. And that has to do with, I've heard you use the phrase uh, recovery orthodoxy versus non-theistic non, non recovery. Mm -hmm. And that you have placed a very, very high premium on service. And in that, I'm thinking jail guitar doors. Yeah. Um, would that be a fair read? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I continued on, you know, I came out of prison with willpower. That's all I had. Okay. You know, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to use. That doesn't last very long, especially when you start a band with Johnny Thunders. <laughs> another, another brilliant career move of Wayne's. But yeah, it took me a long time. I, I think I ultimately aged out. I, I got sober when I was 50. I'm 73 now. Um, and it's a syndrome that I've seen repeated over by guys doing time. At about age 50, 
They're done being gangsters. They're done doing time. They're done being tough guys. They're done being hustlers. They just want to get out. They want to have a little wife and a little home and get a gig and enjoy what life they have left. Mm -hmm. And I think in my case, that, that entered the picture that at age 50, I was done ripping and running and being high and, you know, the endless, endless hustle to, you know, money for drugs. It, it, it's a terrible way to live, needless what, to say. What I see in the things that you've written and which raised my eyebrow as a person whose family is, is speckled with different cases of recovery, some failed, some successful, is that the 12-step program that people are most familiar with and just most thought processes when it comes to recovery, right? Mm -hmm. um, hinged hugely on religion, which you have sort of a lifelong resistance to. And uh, seeing well, you point that out and still being a successful recovery case, I wanted to give you a chance to share your thinking. Yeah, well, there, you know, there's, um, there's utility to it. Because most people, you know, if you broke them down, they would hold on to their childhood ideas of faith and there are childhood ideas of um, what is eternity and what happens when we die. You know, the, those ideas are comforting that, you know, we're going to meet up with our family and our loved ones and we're all going to float around in heaven and play harps and mm -hmm. it's going to be beautiful and glorious unless you're one of the bad people and then you go live in a lake of fire for eternity. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, in the in the 12 steps, when they really are trying to get your attention, mm. they, they'll go to the most meaningful, deepest part of you. And with most people, it's religious belief. But, you know, and I went there. I, I, I embraced it all because I wanted to get better more than anything mm -hmm. I'd ever wanted, more than being a musician, more than being in a rock band. Um, I, I wanted to have a life. I wanted to live. And uh, what I concluded was that, that being a, a non-believer, a non-theist, okay. um, that the world of human beings is enough for me, that the actions of people are enough for me, that the faith people have in me and that I have in them is enough for me, that, that the interactions of people, that I can find everything I need right here in the mortal plane of existence that we actually know of. Um, I really have no use for anything in the supernatural. Okay. The natural world contains multitudes. So if there's yeah. no karmic tie or no religious straight play, right? I, I tend to agree with you, but speaking philosophically for the sake of debate, then where does this sense of obligation to give back and to reach out to people who've been in your situation come from? Because it sure. is certainly a huge part of the Wayne Kramer of 2021. Yeah. Well, as we as we talk about in the steps, you know, when you identify your character defects uh, and your uh, shortcomings, you know, they're not the same thing. Character defects are the things I do that I shouldn't do. And my shortcomings are the things I don't do that I should be doing. Okay. And 
And so to replace the things that I uh, am doing that I shouldn't do with doing things that I should be doing, for example, thinking about somebody else for a change, doing something for somebody else for a change, our thinking is small time. Okay. It's petty. It's picayune. The Buddhists say, if you really want to be selfish, do something for somebody else. Then you benefit too. So, you know, I am of service to my fellows, and I, I view my fellows as the two and a half million Americans serving time in America's prisons. Though Those are my people. That if I help them, it helps me because it helps me rebuild the integrity and the self-respect that I lost on my trip to the gutter, okay. that I pissed away, that I that I I discounted, that I threw away, uh, you know, that I I couldn't look at the mirror and and look at myself in the face and see somebody that I thought was you know. Not so bad that, you know, at least he was trying. I couldn't look at myself in the okay. mirror for years. Um, and if I went one step deeper, I'd say that it's all um, a temporary distraction from my own meaninglessness. My own sense of, you know, in, well, in a 900 billion years, the sun's going to burn out and none of this is going to mean anything. <laughs> yet somehow I find myself fascinated with conversations of the exact nature we're having. So maybe that's it. <laughs> um, uh, you and I discussed some obligations you have going on today that I want to honor. But one of the things that was fascinating to me to learn in the course of this, and I had been a big Clash fan. And it's funny, you and I have literally fascination with Black revolutionaries, um, fascination with organized crime. I drove a 1967 Jaguar XKE. Um, we've <laughs> Greatest got all, car ever built. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know mine was not quite as old as yours, but it was something way out. I never would have been able to buy it myself. I, yeah, I inherited it from. What, what color was it? It was a cream-colored hardtop, but it had that V12. Yeah, and it had the V12, where when you'd step on it, the whole back end would drop. Yeah, but you and I see now. You, I knew if I brought up that car, we'd we'd lose the lead. Jail Guitar Doors, what I did not know while knowing a fair amount about your history and then really loving the book, I know the story of Billy Bragg's foundation, uh, creation of the foundation, but it would be best to let you people know what that organization did and where the name comes from. When I got locked up, this new music form emerged called punk rock. Mm -hmm. There was a band in England that was a very conscious band, The Clash. Mm -hmm. They were MC5 fans. I had a great many friends in London. I toured there relentlessly up towards the end of the MC5. I think we did six European tours before the band broke up. I lived in London for, for a good while, had a lot of friends there. And when I got locked up, um, I became a cause celebre in London rock and roll circles. Okay. They, they did an interview with me because they can't stop prisoner in America. They can't stop prisoners from talking to the press. So they did an interview on the long distance phone line and it was on the cover of the New, Music, New Musical Express. 
And The Clash were MC5 fans, and so they wrote this song called Jail Guitar Doors about my bad behavior, as well as um, a verse about Peter Green and a verse about Keith Richards. Yeah, but let's be real. You, you got the opening line. It was a good rhyme. <laughs> okay. Um, and then when I got out, I heard about it, and I thought, wow, what a great show of solidarity from some brothers, some British brothers that I don't even know. But, you know, and then I didn't think much of it until years, decades later when I decided I wanted to go back into the prisons and do something for prisoners uh, the best idea I could come up with was uh, doing concerts for prisoners. I always liked it when people came into my prison and did concerts for us. So, uh, and I took Billy Bragg in with me and he had Jail Guitar Doors written on his guitar. And that started a whole conversation where he told me he had launched an, an independent initiative to celebrate Strummer's life's work because he inspired Billy to combine his love of activism and music. And um, the more he told me about, you know, using, uh, bringing guitars into prison and donating them as tools for rehabilitation or habilitation, since most prisoners were never, uh, never had the ability in the first place. I thought, this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And I said, by the time we'd finished the concert, I said, you know, this Joe Guitar North thing, let me do this for America. And he said, well, I was just about to task you with it. <laughs> it's a great story. Yes, sir. <laughs> so that was, you know, 11, 12 years ago now. And Today, our instruments are over in over 160 American prisons, and we run programs uh, across the country, many here in California where I live, and we've just built a, a new community center for young people to use the same techniques that we use in the uh, prisons of creativity to inspire people and teach them new ways to process uh, negative and painful memories and feelings um, that are positive, that are non-confrontational, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, teach them skills about how to collaborate with people that they wouldn't normally hang out with. Because when they come home and they get a job, they're probably going to have to work with some people that aren't from their set. Right. And this is a skill we can, we can, we can work on right now. It's great. It's called the Capo Senator, uh, Community Arts uh, Outreach and Programming. Well, it's it's a remarkable arc. If they're not if you're not careful, somebody's going to make a movie about you at some point. Um, I know that we are up against a, com a a commitment outside of this interview, so I want to thank you so much for your time. This is exactly the conversation I hoped it would be. On the other hand, I will tell you that. It's been engaging enough that I wish I could stretch it three hours. I'm going to look for an opportunity to speak to you again sometime, Wayne. That'd be fine. I'd be happy to talk to you again. I, I, I like the deep dive, too. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Wayne Kramer on episode 36 of Dano Says So.
welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. <laughs>